Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised, uh, and raised us up with him, and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a time of prayer once more. God, we commit this time to you. God, as we delve into this passage together, would you speak to us? And in your spirit, as you illumine our hearts and minds, give us understanding. But not only that, may we learn to appreciate the depth of love that you have for broken sinners like us. So God, we commit this time to you. Thank you, and in Christ let me pray. Amen. As we delve into this passage together this morning, we'll be focusing on two things, if you're taking notes. The first one is the bad news. The second one, the good news. And we will be focusing on the bad news first, so that uh, as we get to the good news, which comes right after in the following verses, it will make the good news even better in light of the gospel. And as we think deeply about what God in Christ has already done for broken sinners like you and me. So let's jump into the first point together, the bad news. Let me read first three verses again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul shares pretty much the bad news. And this bad news it's not just for the select few unfortunate, evil, wicked individuals. This bad news is for everyone. No one is exempt because it is a fundamental human problem. Now, what are we talking about here? Total depravity, total inability. And what is this bad news? That we are totally depraved sinners who deserve nothing but death, curse, condemnation, and the wrath of God that we are totally incapable of loving God wholeheartedly and living for God's glory and living a life that is pleasing before God. This is who we are. John Piper, to, to define total depravity for us, he writes the following. Total depravity means 
that our rebellion against God is total. Everything we do in this rebellion is sinful. Our inability to submit to God or reform ourselves is total, and we are therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment. Here in verses 1 to 3, we get the biblical diagnosis of the fallen humanity, and this is how the Bible describes the fallen condition of humanity. We are totally depraved, wretched, wicked, broken sinners. And we are totally unable to live a life that is worthy worthy of the calling that God has placed upon our lives. And this is who we are. In a nutshell, we are doomed. We are ruined. But before we move move on to the good news, which comes in the following uh, verses, starting 4, I would like for us to unpack the bad news a little bit more. Now, in order to portray the, the lost human condition, Paul draws our attention to three specific things in verses 1, 2, and 3. In verse 1, death. Verse 2, slavery. Verse 3, condemnation. And this is the bad news of sin. Verse 1, we were dead in sin. Verse 2, we were enslaved in sin. Verse 3, we were condemned in sin. In verse 1, Paul actually makes a distinction that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, offers a helpful explanation as to why Paul is using two separate words and why why Paul just doesn't say sins, but he also includes trespasses. And I quote John Stott, These two words seem to have been carefully chosen to give a comprehensive account of human evil. A trespass is a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. A sin, however, means rather a missing of the mark, a falling short of the standard. Together, the two words cover the positive and negative or active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. That is to say, our sins of commission and of omission. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. As a result, we are dead or alienated from the life of God. For true life, eternal life, is fellowship with the living God, and spiritual death is a separation from Him, which sin inevitably brings. We were dead in sins and trespasses. But Paul goes on to to remind us that we were enslaved in sin. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, like sons of disobedience. He doesn't stop there. Verse 3, that we were condemned in sin. Why? Because we were living according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But I would like for um, you to understand the following, that total depravity, it does not mean that uh, human beings are as bad as that can be, because that would mean absolute depravity, right? But total depravity means that every faculty of our beings our, our thoughts, emotions, imaginations, actions, every aspect of our lives has been tainted and corrupted by sin. 
Total depravity means that every aspect of the human experience is tainted, twisted, and corrupted by sin. And as a result, there's absolutely nothing good in us to commend to God for his approval. No good works that we can perform that can actually live up to the righteous and perfect standard of our holy God. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us that even all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, like filthy rags before God. So this is the bad news. This is who we once were, apart from Jesus Christ. Totally depraved, wretched, broken, wicked sinners who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. This is who we were. Malcolm Muggeridge claims that the total that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. What is the author saying? And why is that? He is saying that although it doesn't take much for us to verify the depra- the depravity of man, just take a good look at what is happening in this world. Read the news. Watch the news. Doesn't, you don't need to put much effort into confirming and verifying the depravity of men. But when it comes to actually confirming it, owning it, that I am depraved, that I am broken, people have a hard time doing that. People get offended when we tell them you are in need of a savior. And why is that? Because people tend to believe that they are generally good, that they're living a good life, that their lives don't bring harm to the people around them, and that they do their best to live a good life to the best of their ability. And in doing so, what, is being, what they try to accomplish even more, and as, as which is celebrated in our society, is self-sufficiency. They want to become the best that they can be, as they continue to advance in career and continue to, to make the most of their lives. And, and throughout that process, what happens is they reject their desperate need for a savior. They get blinded, utterly blinded to the fact that this is our default mode. This is where we begin, this condition, this fallen state. But as they continue to apply self-sufficiency into their lives, and as they continue to live this way without Christ in their life, they don't feel the need for a Savior. Because in the end, they tell themselves, I'll work hard at it. I'll fix it. I don't need a Savior. I can find all the answers. And this is why people get offended. That's why this is one of the most intellectually resisted fact. I'm good. I'm good enough, right? But take a good look at the world that we are living in. It's deeply broken. We see consequences of sin, the effects of sin everywhere. It's unavoidable, and you cannot miss it, right? And you don't even have to look very far to see and feel the effects and the consequences of sin, And how many of us with a clear conscience can actually confidently say that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart have been good and pleasing before God, that they have been God-honoring and Christ-exalting? 
every moment of our lives, especially behind the scenes when we are alone, when no one is looking. We are all guilty of this. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Apostle Paul goes on to pretty much paint the picture of what total depravity looks like. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of ashes under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Totally depraved and wretched, broken sinners who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, who desperately need divine intervention. God to come and rescue them from this fallen state. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the bad news. And you may be wondering, is there any hope for us? Well, there is. And we will get to the good news now. And there is hope for us. And this is a living hope in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the good news. And we'll be spending much of our time here. Verses 4 and onward. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great uh, because of the great love with which he loved us, and even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no no one may boast. Here's the good news, right? And we're going to be focusing on two things here, what God has done and why God did it, especially for broken, totally undeserving and totally depraved sinners like you and me. So what God has done, and here comes the good news. Starting verse 4, Paul begins to spotlight the one who is able to turn the bad news of sin into the good news of salvation. See, we were spiritually dead, and dead people cannot help themselves. Dead people cannot change. Dead people cannot do anything. Dead people are just dead, period. So here comes the good news, right? God sees us in our helpless state in this fallen state, and he comes to our rescue. He comes from heaven to earth, and this is a divine intervention. And apart from Christ, because of our total depravity and inability, we were on the path of utter destruction and divine wrath and judgment at the hands of the Almighty God. And it is a fearful and dreadful uh, thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Hebrews 10.31 reminds us. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. 
And this is a fire that refers to something that utterly destroys something on its path. Because God utterly, absolutely hates sin. Sin is an abomination to God. Pastor H.B. Charles, to paint a picture of our totally depraved, broken life, this is what he writes. He sums it up this way, that we violated God's holiness, that we disobeyed God's commands, we rejected God's authority, we defied God's will, and that we ignored God's warning. As you can see, we deserve nothing but wrath, judgment, and death. But I want to draw your attention to, to the fact that the verse 4 begins with a conjunction. But. But. Paul begins verse 4 with a conjunction, and following that is, but God. It's a turning point, and this is where the good news starts. Martin Lloyd-Jones Concerning these two words, this is what he writes. These two words, but God, contain the entirety of the gospel. Because as Paul begins verse 4 with but, you cannot help but to look back on what he has already said in verses 1 through 3. This is who we were apart from Jesus Christ. Totally depraved. Totally unable. Incapable of living a life of holiness, living a life that is worthy of the calling that He has placed upon our life. We deserve nothing but death. And this is who we were apart from Christ. But Paul says, but God. He intervenes, right? See, we were cursed, but God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross. We were condemned, but God, who is the sinless Savior, became sin for us on the cross. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive with Christ. We were enslaved in sin, but God set us free from the bondage of sin and death. We were living in darkness, but God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were living in darkness, but God delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We were objects of wrath, but God adopted us as his beloved and precious children. And here's the good news, right? The bad news is that apart from Jesus Christ, we were doomed, <laughs> destined for the fires of hell. And we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to change any, any of that. But here's the good news. We do not have to save ourselves. Why? Because God already did when he went to the cross and he accomplished redemption for you and me. But God... Only God saves. God alone is able to save. God alone is mighty to save. So I hope these two words, but God, really resonate deep into your hearts as a Christian as you look back on how far you have come since you met Christ as your Lord and Savior. I really pray enough that those two words, but God will just wreck you 
in a good way. So that but God will turn into thank God and praise God. So that you will never ever cease from praising his name every moment of your life. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here it is again, but God. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We were totally undeserving of this. It's purely by grace that we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what God in Christ did for broken sinners, totally depraved sinners who are so undeserving of such amazing salvation. This is what he did for you and me. This is the what. But now let's focus on why he did it. Why did he go to the cross? Why did he come from heaven to earth? Starting verse 4, Paul points out what actually moved the heart of God to take the initiative in reaching out to rebels and failures like us. So three things. We're going to take a look. That God is rich in mercy. Number two, because of his great love. And number three, because of the immeasurable riches of his grace. Let's focus on God's great love first. The great Reformation theologian Martin Luther, this is what he writes concerning the different, the fundamental difference between human love and divine love, the way God loves his people. Human love gravitates towards that which is lovable, that which is already good and beautiful, but God's love gravitates towards that which is unlovable and creates that which is lovable. Isn't this so true? The way we love is so conditional. We're drawn to things that are already good and beautiful. That we tend to love things or people that we think and believe are worthy of our affections. Because that's just how we love in our limited, sinful, selfish ways. But God doesn't love this way, as Martin Luther tells us. And this is how God he loves. And what kind of love is this? It's God's agape, perfect, life-giving love. See, this love that we see being manifested for all to see on the cross at Calvary, it's, it's a love that goes from subject to the object, from lover to the beloved. It's a one-way love that brings life and beauty out of the object of this love. And this is how God loves his people. Totally depraved, broken, undeserving sinners like you and me. And it is because of this great love that he took the initiative in coming to our rescue. 
As Thomas Watson reminds us that we may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us because that's just his nature. Because God is love. And since God is love, you don't have to provoke him to love. We provoke him to anger with our sins, but we do not have to provoke him to love because that's who he is. And it is because of his great love that he took our place on the cross. And here's the thing, guys. He died for your sins, past, present, and future. All of it. It's been nailed to the cross once and for all. Our God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Did you know that he already knows everything about you? What happened in your life? Past sins perhaps no one knows about but you. The very things that you're struggling with now, that you're having a hard time sharing with the people around you for accountability, the sins that you haven't even committed yet, but you surely will in the future. He died for all of that. He knows all of that, but yet, in spite of all that, because of his great love, he went to the cross, took our place. Theologian A.W. Pink reminds us of this great love. He foresaw, God foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet but nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Why? Because of his great love. Because of his great love. He already knows everything about you, yet he chooses to love you with love that is unfailing, love that is unconditional, a love that is everlasting. So if there's anything in your life that's keeping you from going before God, let me encourage you by putting it this way. He already knows. And guess what? Here's the good news. He already died for that. So there's absolutely nothing that can come between you and your beautiful Savior. So go before Him with humility and thank Him for this great Love with which he has loved you and me. Now let's talk about mercy and grace. See, he came to our rescue because of his great love, but he came to our rescue because he's also rich in mercy and because of his immeasurable riches of grace. Let's focus on mercy and grace a little bit. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not receiving something that one truly deserves. To put it another way, mercy is when God does not give us, when God withholds what we truly deserve as totally depraved sinners, which is curse, death, condemnation, the wrath of God. This is what we deserve, right? And I think Pastor H.B. Charles, when he was preaching on this on these uh, very verses, this is what he writes concerning the relationship between mercy and grace. Mercy precedes grace. Mercy is God pouring out the punishment that we deserve. Grace is God pouring in the blessings that we do not deserve. God must first pour out before he can pour in. God must first withhold before he can bestow. God must first be merciful before he can be gracious. 
this mercy of God because he is rich in mercy. This is precisely what moved the heart of God to save totally depraved, wretched, wicked, broken, undeserving, spiritually dead sinners like you and me in the first place. Because our God is a God of love, mercy, and grace. But here's where it gets really good. Because as I just shared, mercy is when God withholds something we deserve to receive, right? But God doesn't stop there. This word grace comes in. See, mercy sets the stage for grace and God's amazing grace. What then is grace? Grace is receiving something one truly doesn't deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we truly do not deserve, himself, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps this doesn't really sink in for you, and it doesn't hit home for you because you've heard it so many times when you hear the words love, mercy, and grace. Because because you've heard it so many times, these words have become jaded in your heart. Lost their deep meaning behind them in light of the cross. But I really pray and hope that as you continue journeying your faith, that you will take moments to ponder the great love of God, the God who is rich in mercy. God, through his amazing and saving grace, who came to your rescue, that you will, you will continue to cherish this, continue to think about this to the point that you will learn to celebrate it every step of the way, no matter what is happening in your lives. Author Tullian Division, in his book, One Way Love, this is what he writes concerning the grace of God. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It is a one-way love. This is how God loves. And this is what is at the heart of this good news that Paul is telling us. This great love of God. Our beautiful Savior who is rich in mercy and who bestows and lavishes upon totally depraved and undeserving sinners like you and me Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. With that in mind, how can we possibly keep from praising his name? How can we possibly keep from worshiping him? In Hebrews 9.27, through that first author of Hebrews reminds us that Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Every single one of us, one day and on that day, we will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. No one is immune. No one is exempt. It's coming. Judgment day is coming. But here's the thing, guys. This is where the good news gets even better, right? The verdict that will be rendered and pronounced on that day has already been brought into the present because of what happened in the past 2,000 years ago on the cross because of what Jesus did for you and me. 
You know what the verdict is? Not guilty. And this is the verdict that you will hear on that day, but it has already been brought into the present. Because of what Christ has done for you. This is what the, is at the heart of the good news. So in that sense, you don't have to fear the second coming of Christ, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Because the one who judges is also one who justifies, who went to the cross on your behalf, who even now is interceding on your behalf. Met Smethurst, I love how he puts the gospel in this matter, and this is what he writes. I think lawyers, you'll appreciate this. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. You're no longer guilty. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're cherished. You've been adopted into God's kingdom as his beloved sons and daughters. And not because we did something right. It's not because we can earn this. It's not because we lived a perfect life to satisfy the just and righteous requirements of the law. None of that. It's purely by grace. As Paul reminds us, right? For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. We didn't do any of this so that none of us can boast about it. The ransom has been paid in Jesus Christ. He paid it all. And all to him we owe. Thank God the work of redemption is finished. Thank God that our lives are forever secure in his hands. And thank God the work that he began in our lives, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.6, he will finish. So with that in mind, let's go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Through this verse, Paul reminds us that God created you for a purpose. But not only that, God saved you for a purpose, that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them, that we will live intentionally in light of that calling. Pastor Tim Keller reminds us that God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. Whether you see it or not, because perhaps all you see when you look into your own life and heart is brokenness, but if you're in Christ, you are becoming more and more like him every day. And God who began this work of gospel transformation in your life, he will finish it to completion. And I really pray and hope that, that you will live your Christian life in light of that. That we are all work in progress. And there is grace for us every step of the way. There is a centuries-old Japanese art called kintsugi. And it literally means golden repair. It's in, it's in uh, centuries-old uh, Japanese art of fixing broken pottery 
with a special lacquer dusted with powdered gold. And this is really uh, a unique practice, but this is why this is so unique. This repair, Kintsugi, golden repair, uh, this repair method celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them. Kintsugi often makes the repair piece even more beautiful than the original, revitalizing it with new life. So those broken um, pieces, the, the linings that you see are often referred as the scars of gold. And what's beautiful about this, this practice, Kintsugi, is that it actually, by putting them together, it, it enhances its scars, and instead of trying to hide them, it actually magnifies it, draws everyone's attention to the broken parts. Now, why am I? all of a sudden, bring your attention to this uh, centuries-old Japanese art of fixing broken pottery. Because I do believe that the work that God is doing in our life is just like this. We are all broken sinners, deeply broken. And I think our problem is that instead of going to God, And instead of walking with God and letting the gospel really bring healing and restoration into the brokenness, that is a huge part of our lives. We tend to hide them. We don't even want to acknowledge them. But God is at work in your life, which means that the very brokenness that that you despise, the very brokenness that you try to keep hidden, those are the very parts through which God desires to shine the beauty of the gospel most brightly. And here's the thing, guys. Paul Tripp reminds us that when, when the glory of God and the tragedy of sin collides, something beautiful happens. It's ironic, isn't it? Because usually when there's a collision, what happens? What's, what, what's, what happens in the aftermath? There's utter destruction. There's death. Lives lost. But not with this divine collision. And where do we see this divine collision between the glory of God and the tragedy of sin taking place at the cross? But ironically, surprisingly, this divine collision, it does not result in destruction. It does not dis- uh, end in brokenness, more brokenness, but it ends with life and beauty for, for broken sinners like you and me. Salvation happens as the glory of God and the tragedy of sin meet. It's divine collision. And I pray that as you think about that, and as you see, and as you pray, God, help me to see the work that you, are, that you are doing in my life, especially through the broken parts of my life. God, help me to find healing and restoration through the redeeming and transforming power of the gospel so that instead of hiding my brokenness, my scars, with confidence that comes from you because I know that my identity and worth is firmly grounded in who you say I am, that I will gladly 
show my brokenness, my scars. Knowing that it's through these broken pieces of my life that the gospel shines the most brightly. The most brightly. And get this, brothers and sisters. The very brokenness and scars that you have, that you bear in your life, if you share that in faith, God will use it. And the people around you, they will find healing through your scars, through your brokenness. So when opportunities come, do not shy away. Don't be ashamed, but rather proclaim the good work. Proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he is doing in your life. Go and show. Don't just go and tell. Go and show what he is doing in your life. We are all broken vessels that get this, but we are broken vessels that have been mended with the beauty of the gospel. Acknowledge the broken parts about you, the scars, the broken pieces that you've been trying to hide. Bring them to the Lord, but not only that, knowing that you've been already mended with the beauty of the gospel, let God shine brightly through those ugly parts of you. And I pray that that will become more and more true in our lives. Now, Brandon Manning, I think he's absolutely right when he writes this. The temptation of this age is to look good without being good. I think we are all guilty of this. And I really pray and hope that that this will be our prayer, that God, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, would you break us from the inside out with the transforming, life-giving power of the gospel. I pray that our lives can be that of a glow stick. I wish I had a glow stick here that I can demonstrate this, but before it can shine, what needs to happen to the glow stick? You've got to break it, break it, break it. Before it can shine, it needs to be first broken. I pray that the gospel will break us from the inside out, that we will be broken for good so that through the very broken parts of our lives, God's glory will shine. The beauty of the gospel will be seen. Did you guys ever notice how many of the words for God's saving work start with with the prefix re, R-E, Redeem, reconcile, regenerate, rescue, renew. To give some examples, the prefix re means back or again. And what's my point in sharing this? That God doesn't throw away things that we think to, to us is worthless. God doesn't simply toss and throw out what's been ruined by sin things that are utterly broken, but he, instead of taking them out, throwing them out, getting rid of them, he takes them and he restores it to his original purpose and glory by his grace. Broken vessels prepare for kingdom work, but were broken vessels mended with the beauty of the gospel. 
I really pray and hope that as God continues to work powerfully in your life, and he is, and as you continue to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and as you continue to go deeper and deeper into the gospel so that your identity and your self-worth is firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you will remember that you're God's workmanship, that you're created and saved with a purpose to glorify him, to make much of him. In the places that he has called you, placed you to fulfill the Great Commission, to be his ambassadors, to be his living testimonies. But this also involves being real, acknowledging your own broken parts. Because through those things that we try to hide, God's glory shines the most brightest. I wonder how how many of you know the show called Undercover Boss. I'm sure you guys have all seen this, right? Undercover Boss. The point of the show is the bosses, they go undercover, literally, and they go into the company and they they pretty much um, spend a day as a worker learning uh, the ropes and and hoping to to get to know some of these employees uh, in a more personal level, their struggles, right? And the point of the show is not to get caught until they reveal themselves at the end of the show, right? And I wonder how many of us live as an undercover Christian? Undercover Christian. It's like you're trying so hard not to get caught as a Christian, not to be found, not to be known as a Christian in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your interactions with the people that you meet. Are you an undercover Christian? God saved you with a purpose and he will supply the power with which that you need to live out this Christian life. So with that in mind, Be bold, be courageous, be confident with the strength that comes from the gospel and continue to shine brightly for his kingdom. And when things get difficult, go back. Go back to the cross. Go back to the early parts of this chapter, who we once were apart from Christ. This is who we were, and this is from which what God saved us. Remember that. Remember those two words? But God, which sums up the entirety of the gospel, let that continue to sink in and empower you to live intentionally for his glory. And I do believe that if we learn to be more honest with the parts that we do not want to show, the parts that we want to, be, uh, we want to, to keep hidden in our, in our lives, I believe that as we learn to be more vulnerable with with those parts that we do not want to show, I do believe that his kingdom will even more advance as the glory of God is seen through the broken parts of our lives. Brothers and sisters, you're God's workmanship. Remember that. You are portraits of grace. Remember that. And your lives are stories of grace. Remember that. Celebrate that. Let's pray.
Father, we cannot thank you enough for loving us this much. Thank you for coming to our rescue. We praise you for your great love. We praise you for your mercies. We praise you for your amazing and saving grace. When we were totally depraved, wretched and broken sinners who deserve nothing but death and punishment, you came to our rescue, took our place on the cross so that we can be made whole, so that we can become your children, so that we can call you as Abba Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ. May this amazing gospel truth continue to sink in and resonate deep into our hearts, Lord. But, but may this amazing truth about you and about what you are doing in our lives compel us to live intentionally, boldly, and with also humility and joy for your kingdom and glory, Lord. God, we love you. Cannot thank you enough. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.